Genesis chapter 18. And let's again just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, the great, incredible privilege that it is to be long to you and to be in your house and to be sitting at your feet and hearing your word. And we just pray now, Lord, that as we open up our hearts and our Bibles, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak, that you would anoint these passages, these words, and that you'd help us, Lord, to hear your voice through it. We're so grateful, and we just pray that we'd be filled tonight, fed, Lord, stuffed with your truth. So come near, Holy Spirit, fill us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. And so during these weeks leading up to resurrection, what we've started doing in our house is... Um, we've kind of branched off from where we were going through the Bible and we started going through um, the, the things leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have been in um, Luke's gospel in our house and um, the other night we were reading and there was a, 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 um, a, an interaction that took place between Jesus and some of the religious rulers that were seeking to um, trip him up in his words and find and build a case against him so that they might um, bring him to condemnation. And as they were asking these questions and kind of stumbling over themselves, Jesus said, I've got something to say to you. And he told the parable of uh, the vineyard. And basically, he said there was a man who was a landowner and he had to go into a far journey and so he rented out his land to farmers, tenants. And so they took this land, and it was a good land, and they had it for a time, and they loved the land, and it kind of became their own, and they sort of took it over, forgot about the owner of the land. But the owner of the land wanted some fruit. He wanted some of the produce of the land that rightfully belonged to him. And so he sent some of his servants, but when the tenants saw the servants, they said, look at this. And rather than giving the man some of what was his own, they beat the servants and sent them away shamefully. And so he sent other servants, and they did the same thing. And then finally, he resolved, well, here's what I'll do. I'll send my son, and my son will go, and they'll reverence him because he's my blood. But rather than reverencing him, they counseled amongst themselves, and they said, well, he's the heir. If we kill him, then the vineyard will become ours when the man dies. And so they killed the son, and Jesus said, what will that landowner do? He will certainly come, and he will destroy those men and give the vineyard to others. But what it was is basically a parable of God giving stewardship of the world to us, and then coming and seeking fruit from what belonged to him, and how he sent prophets, and they were beaten and stoned. Then he sent his son, Jesus, and ultimately, he was killed because of those religious people that wanted to take it all on for and over for themselves. But the parable struck me because in it, God wanted fruit from something that was rightfully his. The nation of Israel, who is the land and they are the people in the parable, God planted them. And God came seeking fruit from it and rather than obtaining fruit from what he planted and wanted to enjoy, it came back to him that there was none, and they took it over for themselves. Well, I thought that was very interesting in light of Genesis chapter 18, the passage that we find ourselves in here tonight. Because in a similar way, what God does here with his servant Abraham is that God comes to this man whom he planted. 
God calling Abram out of a foreign land and from foreign gods, revealing himself to Abram, Abraham now, forging this relationship, and now God is going to come visit him, seeking fruit from the life of this man that he planted. Now, what is fruit that God would seek from someone whom he reveals himself to? What does God want from his people? And this now comes into you and I. If God were to visit us, seeking fruit from what he planted in our lives, what is it that he's looking for? He's not looking for something from us, just like he's not going to be looking for something from Abram. What does God want? God called us to be in a loving relationship with him. That's what he wants from us. And so when God comes into our lives, when there's a visitation and the Lord draws near, the thing that he's seeking from us is not what he can get from us or what we'll do for him, but he's looking for an interaction. He's looking for relationship, for communion, for fellowship. And the desire of God is that he comes away from that visitation with fruit. And the fruit for God is simply to walk away from it saying, that was sweet. It's good fruit. There's good interaction. There's good fellowship. There's a healthy link between me and my son or my daughter. That's what God wants in the life. And it's amazing that that's what God's going to get from Abram here in this instance. Now, God has some business to do with Abram. He's got two things that he wants to accomplish in this meeting, but he comes to him for fellowship. Notice what it says, Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. We're told again that the Lord comes and that the Lord appears to his servant Abram. Now, this is the sixth time that God has come to him or manifested himself to him, at least as it's specifically recorded in Scripture. Twice we're told that God said to Abram. Twice we're told that the word of the Lord came to Abram. And twice now we're told that the Lord appeared unto Abram. Now, we don't know the um, specifics of how it all came to pass other than what's revealed to us here in the text, but we're told that God came to him and now he comes the sixth time to him. Now, there's an important principle here as it relates to you and I and our relationship with God. I think all of us want to have times where we sense that the Lord draws near or where we sense that the Lord speaks to us or where he comes to us. And hopefully all of us have those times that we don't look at certain people like, okay, the prophet or the apostle or the pastor has experiences like that, but God doesn't meet with just the ordinary Christian like that. No, he wants to and he does. You say, well, how does it happen? Well, very clearly and primarily, it happens to those who are in the program of God. Abraham is coming off the heels of immediate obedience. Remember in the last chapter, God came to him and said, Hey, Abraham, I've got something that I want you to do. Circumcision for you, your sons, and all of your descendants after you. I know I'm asking a lot, but it's an important thing for me, Abram, that you be circumcised for what it symbolizes for you and for future generations. And we're told that the same day that God spoke that to Abraham, he obeyed and he did the thing that God called him to do. Now we see, without barely a breath between the two chapters, the Lord comes to him again. And here's the principle. Is that if you want to have interactions with God, if you want to hear his voice, if you want him to speak to you and reveal himself to you, then get with his program. Be about what he's about and he'll come to you in order for you to be a part of what he's doing. That's exactly what happens to Abram here. 
He's part of what God's doing, and thus God comes to him. John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus spoke these words. He said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business or what his Lord does. But he says, I have made all things known unto you. And it's God's desire that we be a part of what he's doing and that he communicate with us and speak to us, meet with us. But it requires that we be a part of what he's doing on things. It was in an unexpected time and in an unexpected manner that God came, but Abraham was available and thus God met with him. Verse 2, it says that he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and he bowed himself toward the ground. And he said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. And so Abram now looks and these three men appear. Now we're not told if he saw them coming from a distance the text kind of infers that he turned around and there they were. But somehow he knew that these three strangers were not just ordinary men traveling through. He immediately recognized that they were from another place. And he knew that one of them was more than just a man. And he was. One of these three men is God. This is probably Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament with two angels to Abraham in the middle of the day. It's amazing to me that Abraham recognized that. He had enough of a history with God that when God showed up, he knew that it was God, and he immediately responds in that way. Notice his response, verse 4. He says, Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and then rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and, I'll, and you comfort your hearts, and after that you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Now, an amazing thing about Abraham here, as God comes to him, is the reaction and the attitude that Abraham had towards God. God came and Abraham immediately took the place of the servant. He said, let water be gathered, let food be gotten. And even used the word fetch. He said in the King James, he said, I will fetch a morsel of bread and you will comfort your hearts and after that you will pass on for that's the reason why you came to your servant. Now, that's amazing to me because what I find in my own heart in the selfishness of me, and I know this doesn't happen to you, is that when the Lord draws near, my attitude often isn't one of, Lord, what can I do for you? But my attitude is usually, oh Lord, I'm glad you're here. Because I've been meaning to talk to you about a few things. There's a few promises that I've claimed in your word and a few things that you've whispered to my heart. And Lord, it's been a few years now that I've been waiting on these things and I'm glad you've taken this time to come because Lord, I want to talk to you about those things. It's a stark contrast between what we see in Abraham here, isn't it? It's funny how we often treat God like the dog and we tell him to fetch for us, right? Lord, would you fetch me a bride? Lord, would you fetch me a new mind? Would you fetch me some freedom? And sometimes we have this irreverent way in which we treat God in the times that we interact with him. But that's not the example that we get from Abraham here, who's called God's friend. He immediately says, God, what can I do for you? Now, God doesn't need anything that Abraham can give to him. He doesn't need his food. He doesn't need his help. Abram knows that full well by now. 
But nevertheless, Abram offers service and God accepts that service. What if our approach to worshiping God were more like Abraham's? What if when we came to a church gathering, our attitude was more about what we can do for God than what we're going to get from him in the process? What if we came to church every Sunday and every Wednesday with the attitude of, Lord, I'm coming here for you, and what can I do for you here today? Who can I touch in your name? What can I do, or who can I encourage? Or, Lord, what is it that you have for me to do when I'm in the midst of your people today that your feet might be washed, that you might be edified and pleased and blessed and rest, and then go on your way on things? Our attitude often when we come to worship is, Lord, what am I going to get out of it? I hope the music is good today. I hope they have the contemporary team and not the hymn team singing the songs. I hope the message is clear and good and nice and short and crisp and I get the word and that the coffee in the solid ground is hot and fresh and that nobody talks to me today. And that can so often be our attitude when we come. And, and if it is, then we're like, it was a good service today. It was great. But what if our attitude was the other way? And we said, well, it's not about what I'm going to get or if I even get. But I'm going to serve. And Lord, how can I serve in some way today? What if when we came to prayer, in our personal time of just communing with God and talking with God, our attitude was more, Lord, I want to hear from you what you want from me. I'm here reporting for duty. Lord, what do you want to do in my life today? What would you have me to do? rather than coming to him and just saying, okay, Lord, this is the time. And now I'm going to cast my cares and make my requests known because you told me I could and that I should. And we should, and we do. But what if our attitude was more like Abram? You know what's amazing? Is that Abram receives everything that God has for him in this interaction, but his attitude was not about getting. His attitude was all about giving. He hastened, he ran from the place where he was, and that's the way he's going to move continually through this meeting with God. Lord, what can I give to you? How can I serve you in things? The irony is if we approached God the way Abram did, we would probably get so much more out of our interactions with him and with his people than we do. But Abraham, an amazing example. Here's his hospitality. It says that Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah. And he said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth, bread. And Abraham ran unto the herd, and he fetched a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. So Abram prepares this amazing meal. I mean, this is an abundance of food for just three guests. An incredible act of hospitality and liberality from Abraham. And he gives it to them, and then he doesn't even eat it with them, but he stands by the tree in the place of a servant, and he watches them eat. And the amazing thing is that God receives the offering, and he sits down with the two angels, and they eat it. An act of accepting the worship that Abraham was offering. For those of you that pay attention to the, the, the small things in the scripture, do you notice what it is that Abram set before them? It says butter and milk and meat. Not kosher, right? I mean, a good Jewish boy mixing dairy and meat in the same meal. And yet God sits down to eat it. That's remarkable to me. Now, two comments on that. Number one, 
in the law of Moses where it talks about the kosher rules, all it says specifically is that you shall not seethe a kid in his mother's milk, meaning you're not to boil a young calf in the milk that was obtained from the mother. That there's just something there about that that God said, don't do that. Don't have a cow and then cook it in its mother's milk. That's cruel. Now what Israel did is that they took that command and they said, well, just in case we don't know the source of the milk and just in case we would violate that law accidentally, we will never mix dairy and meat in the same meal. And that became a law and a tradition to them, all based on that one phrase that God just said, you shall not see the kid in his mother's mother. They should have just gone a little bit further back in history and look what Abram did to God and that God ate it and it would have cleared a lot of things up. You know, the Bible just clears a lot of things up, doesn't it? When you just take, take the word for what it is, you know? It doesn't, they won't even eat chicken in the same meal as dairy. You, don't, you can't get dairy from a chicken. You know, it, it, it can't happen. You know, it's just amazing what man will do uh, when left to mess with the things of God. But let's say, for instance, that it was the will of God that dairy and meat not be obtained in the same meal. It blows my mind here that God did it. That even if Abraham got it wrong a little bit in the way that he was offering to God, God accepted the sacrifice because he saw it coming from a pure heart. God sits down. He didn't need any of it. Do you know that God doesn't need anything that we bring to him? He doesn't need our help or our service. He doesn't need our money, our talents, or our time. He needs absolutely nothing. But yet he's pleased to accept what we offer and to use it for his glory and for his kingdom. That's an amazing thing to me. The Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that if he were hungry, he would never even tell us. That tells me that God needs nothing that I could ever bring to him. But yet it pleases him to use anything that I would, even if it's just a few loaves and a few fish, to bless some of his people. He'll multiply it, bless it, and use it. Would to God that we would be like Abram, that we would worship as he did. Well, now the orders of business. Why is God there? Why did God come to Abram? He didn't come because he was looking for free food. The first order of business in verse 9, it says that they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, 90 years old at this point, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore, or why did Sarah laugh? Now, notice, it says that she laughed within herself. She didn't laugh out loud. This was silent, and even the words that she said, they were spoken silently in her heart. She said, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? But God hears the heart. And he said, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return unto you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he, the Lord, said, nay, but you did laugh. 
So God comes to Abraham here, and the first question he has, now that they're going to get down to business, is he asks them a question. He says, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, he doesn't ask that question because God doesn't know. God knows exactly where Sarah is. He is omniscient. The Bible tells us that he knows all things. He proves that he knows all things by proving that he could hear the things that Sarah was thinking silently. He knew right where Sarah was. It wasn't for her sake that he asked. He asked for Abraham's sake. He wasn't saying, I need to know where your wife is. God was saying, I need to know if you know where your wife is. Do you know where your wife is, Abraham? And I think that's a very important question that God asks. Whenever God calls a man or a woman into his service, God calls both the man and his spouse, or the woman and her spouse. We're a partnership. And the first order of business with God, the primary thing that he's concerned with, is our relationship with our spouse. And if our relationship with our spouse isn't where it's supposed to be, then it's game over right there. Because that has to be right in order for God to move forward with the things that he wants to do through our lives. Things have to be right in our lives before God can do things through our lives. And so because the plan of God has so much to do with Sarah, God says, where is Sarah, your wife? Do you know Abram? And he would ask you and I tonight, man, woman, where is your spouse spiritually? Where are they? Are they doing good in the things of God? Do you know where they are? Are they in the tent, so to speak, the place where they're supposed to be? Are they sojourning through this world with their eyes on heaven? Are they with you arm in arm, moving in harmony with you in the things of God? Or is there a disjointedness where there's an unequal yoke? That has to be made right. Is your response, Abram, the, oh gosh, her? I don't know where she is, God. Why did you give me this woman? That's not the response at all. Abraham knows where she is. Furthermore... Because of the plan that God has for Abram and for his wife, it's going to require that they be on good terms. Notice what God says to him. Where is your wife? He says in the tent, God said, I will certainly return unto you according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door that was behind him. Hey, listen, Abram, it's very important that you know where your wife is and that you be on good terms with her because you and her are about to spend a lot of time together. To the point where Sarah even laughs, and she goes, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? It's going to take a lot of time. <laughs> We're beyond dead in this whole thing. She laughs because it seems to her an impossibility that God could do the thing that he spoke. Abraham is 100 years old. He's beyond strength to have a child. We're told that in the New Testament and here. Sarah is 90 years old. She's way beyond the point of menopause where scientifically it's possible for her to have a child. And thus when she hears this voice that Sarah's going to have a child, it causes her to laugh because she realizes the human impossibility. And so the situation, in contrast with the word of God, for her it seems impossible and thus she laughs. And God's response to it, which I love in verse 14, is he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I love that verse. I hope it's circled and underlined, highlighted and memorized from your Bibles. Because absolutely nothing is too hard for the Lord. This is a theme that continues to come up over and over again throughout the scriptures. 
In the book of Job, chapter 42, verse 2, when Job just seemed in such a dire circumstance, it seemed like life was over because of the trial that he was going through. And God finally breaks through and comes to Job and reveals purpose and reveals himself and ends the trial. Job's reply to God, Job 42, verse 2, he says, Now I know that nothing is too hard for you and that you can do anything, that you can do everything. In the days of Jeremiah, when things were looking so dark for the nation and judgment was looming, and Jeremiah was burdened because of the trouble that was coming. Jeremiah prayed to the Lord, and Jeremiah declared in faith, and he said, God, you're the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for you. And God replied ten verses later to the prayer of Jeremiah, and he said, you're right, Jeremiah. Nothing, nothing is too hard. Is anything too hard for me? Nothing is too hard for God. When Jesus was about to be born and the angel Gabriel came to this young virgin Mary who was chosen by God to sire the Messiah into the world. Mother the Messiah. I guess you wouldn't sire him, right? That's a paternal term. You know. And Mary said, how is it that I could have a child being that I've never been with a man? And the angel said, the Holy Ghost will come upon you and that child will be called the Son of the Blessed or the Son of the Highest. And then he said, and furthermore, Nothing shall be impossible with God. Not one word will be without power. When Jesus was living out his ministry upon the earth, he spoke a very difficult word in the presence of his disciples. He said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples heard it and they looked at him and they said, Lord, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied to them, as he said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. From Genesis to Revelation, God stands upon creation and he says that nothing will be too hard for me. Natural, scientific law, human government, powers and principalities, God sits above all of it and nothing is too hard for him. The issue with God is never ability. The issue with God is always purpose and time. That's the issue with God. Is it his will that something be done, or is it time for that something that is his will to be done? And both of those things have to be in place in order for God to move. If something's not God's will, then he's not going to do it. Not because he can't, but because it's not in his good and perfect will for him to do it. It might be his will, but maybe it's not time yet. Notice the word that God says to Sarah and Abraham in this, in verse 14. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return to you. Ah, here's the issue. He said the same thing back in chapter 17, verse 21. He said, my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah will bear unto you at this set time time in the next year. That's twice God said the same thing concerning this conception and this birth. Listen, it has always been my will, Abraham, for you and Sarah to have a son. It just hasn't been the time. But at the set time, it's going to happen. You might be in a situation here tonight where you're looking at something that seems impossible. In fact, according to natural human law, human reason, it might be impossible. Understand this. It isn't impossible with God. 
The thing that you're looking towards or hoping for or thinking or wanting or needing, it is not impossible with God. It's not even hard for God. He could make it happen just like that. The obstacle isn't God's ability. The obstacle is, is it his will, number one, and is it his timing, number two? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, says that there is a time for every purpose under heaven. If it's not God's purpose, or if it's not God's time, then there will be a delay. But when purpose and time come together, and there is always a rendezvous of purpose and time for the people of God, when purpose and time come together, God's will will be accomplished, and scientific law and human government or any other force cannot keep it from coming to pass. Again, reading through the Easter story with my kids, we came to the passage of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And it says that Jesus was riding on the back of a donkey and the people were throwing their clothes in the way before him as he came into the city and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious rulers understood that that was a messianic phrase, the Lord Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they shouted to Jesus. And they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's blasphemy what they're saying and ascribing to you that you're the Messiah. And Jesus looked at those guys and he said an amazing thing. He said, If these should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. You say, That's impossible. Stones can't cry out. No one's ever heard a stone utter a peep before. They don't have mouths, breath, or lungs. They don't have vocal cords. There's nothing scientific about a stone crying out. And yet Jesus said if these were to hold their peace, the stones would cry out. Why? Well, Jesus went on to say in the very next verse, it's Luke 19.40, and then the four verses that follow it there in the passage. He lamented over Jerusalem. He said, because you guys didn't know the time of your visitation. You weren't ready. Daniel the prophet had prophesied 700 years prior to that moment that on that very day, the Messiah of God would be manifested to Israel. It's the most specific prophecy in all of the Bible where God told them the very day that he would come and Jesus fulfilled it to the very day. That's why Jesus said the stones would cry out. Because the time that God had appointed for the purpose of the Messiah coming to the nation was fulfilled at that moment. And it's impossible for anything to stop what God has ordained to come to pass. Which would mean that if the disciples should hold their peace, the stones would cry it out. You cannot stop the purpose of God. And that should bring us comfort tonight and patience. Because God has good things in store for every one of us. He has promises that he's made to every one of us. There's things that many of us have been waiting for for years, wondering if it's going to happen to the point where some of us have even forgotten or lost hope that it could ever happen or be. Listen, if God's spoken it and if God wills it, when the set time of God's appointment for your life comes to pass, nothing is going to stop God's counsel and purpose from coming to bear upon your life. At the set time appointed, I will visit her and she will have a son. God is able. Well, God's second order of business in verse 16, notice. It says that the men rose up from thence, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. 
And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, now to Abraham, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And so God turns his attention now from the Sarah Abraham child theme to now what God is going to do in Sodom. And he knows this concerns Abram greatly because Abram has family specifically a nephew named Lot and his family, living in the city of Sodom, and God knows that their judgment is coming. Their time is almost up. And here God, counseling with the two angels that are with him, is evaluating within himself and to them how much information he should give to Abraham. He says, shall I tell Abraham? Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? How much should I tell him? Well, how much should I let Abraham in on my plans and what I'm about to do in the city of Sodom? And God actually lets us into his evaluation process. He actually tells us the reasonings of why he's going to communicate what he's going to communicate with Abraham. And I love this because I believe God does the same thing for you and I. Again, he wants us to be a part of his plan. And he wants to let us in on what he's doing. But how much is he going to tell us? What is he going to tell us? And will he tell us it? How does God determine how much information he's going to give to you and I in, an, in a situation or in an instance? Amos, the prophet, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, God says this. He says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Or shall there be evil in a city and the Lord has not done it? Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said concerning you and I and our relationship with him, he says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he will hear, that will he speak, and he will show you things to come. Meaning that God has placed it within us that he wants us to be a part of what he's doing in situations. And he will reveal to us information and things that we need to know in those situations. But what is going to determine whether or not he decides to communicate that information to us? Well, for Abraham, God said, I'm going to communicate it with him. First of all, we see in verse 16, because Abram very simply went with them to bring them on their way. Abraham cared. And I ask you tonight, do you care sincerely about what God is doing in this world or in the sphere that you reside within or within your family or the people that are around you? Do we, sometimes we ask, do we even care what God is doing? Okay, God, you came, you, I gave the offering, I fed you, you spoke to me concerning the promise that you're going to give, you got what you wanted, I got what I wanted, have a nice day. And we send God on his way. But no, Abraham continued, he said, God, is there anything else? 
What is your business? What would you have me to do? And he hangs in there. God gives his business to those that actually care. The second thing that God uh, says concerning why he's going to communicate with Abraham is in verse 19. He says, because I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. God looks at him and he says, listen, it's worth it for me to communicate my will and my word and my ways to Abraham because I know that if I do, he's going to tell his kids. And that's important to God. Sometimes people ask me, you know, how I learned the Bible. You want to know primary way, number one, is by teaching my kids. Just sitting with them on the floor at night before they go to bed and telling them Bible stories. Sometimes the things that God unfolds and reveals and makes known in just the unplanned moment of just sharing the Word of God with my kids. And right here is the reason why He does it. Because God cares about future generations. And if we're those people that are going to communicate the things of God, the plans of God, and the ways of God to a successive generation, then it pleases God to let us in on what He's doing. And I ask you, Mom and Dad, is that a priority in your life and in your home, to be feeding your kids the things of God? Because the more we give to them specifically, the more we get. Abraham, I know him. He's going to tell his children after him. The third thing that God says is the same in, is in verse 19. It says that they will keep the way of the Lord. In other words, Abram is not just asking me because he's curious, but he's serious about the things that I'm doing. He's going to keep the way. He's not just going to say, oh, that's nice, God. Now I know something. Put it in my journal and maybe I'll look it up sometime in the future. No, once I reveal my ways to Abram, he's going to keep my ways. And then finally, in the same verse, it says those two little words that we so love. It says, to do. To do. Do you see those words? He's going to keep my way to do them. God gives his revelation, his word and his command to those that are doers of his word. So those that are interested, those that communicate, those that will keep and those that will do, those are the ones that God evaluates and says, I'm going to let them in on what I'm doing. And then he tells them what it is, and it's concerning the city of Sodom. God has to say one thing to Abram, and the whole message is conveyed, that their sin is very great. And Abraham knows what the sin is. He knows what God is saying. He's there for judgment, that there's fire in his eyes, and that God is about to do something in an ungodly uh, um, place to an ungodly people. Now, concerning the sin of Sodom, and, I, and I, I think I don't have to go too far tonight in explaining to you exactly what that is. We all understand uh, traditionally and morally what it was that they were doing in that city and what it was that, that they had come to wherein now the judgment of God has been brought upon them. But the amazing thing is, is that we look, as we look at it in the Bible and we see what God has to say about Sodom, his charge against them was not sodomy or, or what we would consider to be like the major sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the expression of their sin. That was the furthest point of depravity that their sin had brought them to. But according to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16, verse 49, God says that the sin of Sodom was pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and she didn't strengthen the hand of the poor, or she had no concern for the poor. That that was the sin. When God looked at the city, that was the cry of it. That was the sin. They were full of themselves and full of pride. They were totally idle. 
They, they were just wasting time. They had no purpose at all for anything but themselves. They were full of food, and they cared about nobody else except for themselves. And what God essentially communicates through that to us is that that is the root of what led to what Sodom ultimately became known for, the great wickedness that we know sodomy to be in the Bible. And so it's important that we just understand the context of what's going on. Now here comes Abraham's uh, uh, response to God's revelation. Notice in verse 23. When, when Abraham got the message and he knew what God was going to do, notice what he says. It says that Abraham drew near and he said, deep concern, he said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous people within the city. Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Will you, God, destroy righteous people along with wicked people? If there are 50 righteous people in the city, won't you spare the entire city for the presence of those 50 righteous? It doesn't seem fitting with the character that I've come to know of you that you would judge righteous people, innocent people, along with guilty and sinful people. Well, God responds to Abraham in verse 26. It says that the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And I'm sure that brought a huge sigh of relief to Abraham, even as it does to us here tonight listening to the story, right? That God says, of course, the judge of the earth is going to do right, and I will spare it for the sake of those 50. God is absolutely just, meaning fair. That's what Abraham is questioning in God's character in this. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Aren't you a just God? God is what he's asking. And God's saying, yes, I am a just God. And thus I won't judge the righteous along with the wicked. But understand, church, that in that same vein of God's justice, justice means equality, that he measures in equal balances. That though he will not destroy the righteous along with the, the wicked in his judgment, what's good for the goose is also good for the gander, isn't it? Which means that if God is just then what he did to Sodom then lays the precedent or the groundwork for what he will do to an ungodly nation or an ungodly world in the future. That a just God must just, justly judge sin, right? And so for God to judge Sodom as he's going to do, but then spare a future generation or a different city or nation or world, that's guilty of the same things, would be unequal on his part. He's just and fair. Thus, God will judge even as he lays the precedent of his justice. Well, what does this mean for you and I? It means, it means that God is going to judge because the whole world has gone the way of Sodom in all of its sin, in all of its expression. We used to hear the term, didn't we? We used to hear the term, out of the closet. Remember when people used to say that? Are they out of the closet? What happened now in our day is that the term out of the closet is out of the closet. Nobody's in the closet anymore. The closet is open. The closet door is open. The real question on things 
is what were they doing in the closet in the first place? Here's the answer. Jesus said that men love darkness because their deeds were evil. And the fact that everything is out of the closet and that the closet is now open, what that tells us is that it's as dark outside of the closet as it used to be inside the closet, which means that the world is ripe for judgment and that Jesus is coming soon. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The wicked of the world are indebted to the righteous because the godly are, pr are preserving the wicked. In other words, the presence of godly people in the world are keeping God's judgment from falling on the entirety of the whole thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, then it is henceforth good for nothing. What's the it? The it is the world. It's the subject of the, 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 the sentence or the teaching. If the salt loses its savor, then it, the world, is good for nothing but to be trodden under the foot of men and cast out. In other words, if you and I, as the salt of the earth, lose our savor, then the world is ripe for God's judgment. There's nothing left. The salt preserves. And as we see throughout the Bible, that it was because of Jacob that God blessed and multiplied Laban, the righteous being a shield for the ungodly. It was because of Joseph that Potiphar was blessed and that he prospered, the presence of the righteous being a covering for the godly. It was because the Apostle Paul was on the ship that was stuck in a storm that would ultimately be its destruction. It was because Paul was there that the men were spared, every single one of them that were on the ship. The righteous being a covering for the ungodly. You guys hear this thing about this, I think her name is Joy Bear or something in the morning show? Morning, early, what is it? What's the name of that? The, er, the early show or something? Good. The View, whatever. Yeah, The View. Did you hear about this? That she was talking about Mike Pence, the Vice President of the United States, and his faith. And she said that he was mentally ill because he says he hears Jesus speak. She said he hears voices. Don't we call that mental illness? He's mentally ill. That's an amazing thing. Now, she, she did apologize, but just imagine for a moment, what if she said that about a Muslim professor? professing Muslim. He's insane. He's mentally ill. He's saying he's hearing from Allah. She would be dead before she gets to the next broadcast. Or fired, she would be gone. But yet for her to say that about Christians, it just slides under. Nobody notices. But then, of course, she backed off and she, you know, she apologized. If Joy Bear, is that her name? If she knew what Mike Pence was doing for her just by being a citizen of the United States, she wouldn't apologize, she would thank him. Because it's the presence of the godly that are preserving the lives of those that are ungodly in the world that we live in today. But it's not going to be like that forever. Abraham's intercession goes on. It says in verse 27, it says that Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Perhaps there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Will you destroy all the city for the lack of five? And he said, The Lord, if I find forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke unto him yet again, and he said, Perhaps there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. 
And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak peradventure. There shall be 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. <laughs> you say, this is amazing. Abram, could you please cut to the chase? You know, just get where you're going on it, you know. Understand that this is, this is a part of Middle Eastern culture in Abram's day and even to the present day. If you go over there and you want to enter into any kind of a transaction or come to any terms of agreement, there is always a negotiation where you go back and forth. I remember when we were there, we went through the Arab market, you know, and I love the knives. They sell these amazing daggers, you know. And, and you come in and you see it and the price tag is like 60 bucks or something like that. And you come in and you just offer them some ridiculous number. You just say, I'll give you $10 for it. And they go, what? Are you out of your mind? Get out of my shop. I'll kill you. You know, you, you, you know. And, and so you go, all right, all right. And then you turn around and you walk away. They say, wait, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. And they say, you give me $45. I never give up $45. You're stubborn, you know. And you say, $45, are you sick? Look at this thing, it's garbage. This thing will rust as soon as water touches it. I'm not giving you 45 Listen, you won't take 15 I'll give you 18 bucks. That's as high as I'm coming. Get out of my shop, I'll starve to death if I sell it for that. I'll pay you, get out. You know, in this whole thing. You go back and forth, and you just go, and you get them down to like a certain point. And you realize that's where it's at. And then you buy it. You say, all right, I'll give you $21. You know, and then you give them the money. As soon as you give it, I love you. You're very good. Love doing business with you. you know? and, and, and all of a sudden, you're their best friend. And you're like, well, what flip? What happened? Listen, for them in that culture, it's part of communion. It's part of interaction. It's part of, of, of relating. If you go in and you don't negotiate with them, then they want nothing to do with you. It's, it's for them, it's communion what's happening there. That's just their culture. It's what's happening. That's exactly what Abraham's doing here with God. He could get right to the point, but God's enjoying this. God doesn't say, Abe, come on, I got business. Verse 31, he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to the Lord. Peradventure there be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 26. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Now, Abram gets God down, down to ten on this, and Abraham is content with ten. He assumes to himself, there's got to be at least ten. Lot, his wife, he has two married daughters, that's four more. He's got two virgin daughters, that's two more. And he's got two sons. We'll learn it in the next chapter, counting up, that's ten. Abram goes, there's got to be at least ten. 10. And so I know God is not going to judge Sodom as long as Lot is there in the city, uh, there um, in, uh, in things. Understand this. It's an important principle concerning the judgment of God. That God does not judge the righteous alongside with the wicked. Now, He will chastise a rebellious nation. And the righteous will go through that chastisement in whatever way it manifests. But when judgment ultimately falls and God is done being patient with a place, He will remove the righteous from that place. We're going to see that in the next chapter as Lot is removed from Sodom before. And when the world is ripe for judgment, the Bible says that God will remove His people from the planet before His judgment falls. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16-18, through 18, 
where God says that those that are alive at that time will be taken out of the world supernaturally and will be in the presence of the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says that we, you and I, believers, the righteous because of Christ, not because of us, that we are not appointed unto wrath. And thus God will spare the righteous before he judges the ungodly and the wicked. Notice how the chapter closes. It says that the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. Isn't that amazing? That Abraham thought he was bargaining, but to God it was communion. To God it was precious. It was sweet time for God and Abram to be talking together. And it says that Abraham then returned unto his place. God left this interaction with Abram and his family, and he said that was sweet. I came seeking fruit, from my servant and my son, and I got exactly what I came for. I accepted his service. I received the offering at his hand. I communicated my promise, and it was received by faith. I spoke into the life of his wife. I let him know what my plans were for his extended family and the future of a surrounding nation. He prayed to me, and he interceded on their behalf. It was sweet. It was an awesome interaction from God's perspective. Concerning this concept of prayer and intercession, this is the first time we see it in the Bible. Abraham is an amazing example of, of what it means to pray and how to pray. Do you notice the humility in Abram's prayer? He didn't come to God demanding, claiming. He came in humility and lowliness. He said, God, I'm your servant. I'm dust and ashes, and I'm taking it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Please be patient with my ignorance. So humble. That's the way we should approach God. Notice that his prayer was also specific. He asked specific questions and specific things, and he received specific answers. And Jesus tells us that that's the way that we're to pray. He said, ask. Emphatically, he said, ask, and you'll receive. Notice that it was relational, Abram's prayer. That it was a combination of both speaking and listening. He didn't just blab it all out all at once and then hope that God would whisper something in return, or worse yet, just leave. But he spoke and he waited. There was speaking and there was listening. He also took a little bit of time in things. It wasn't just in and out 15 minutes. Okay, God, I got my prayer off. Now on with my day. It took as long as it took, and Abraham was willing to give that time. It was also revelatory, meaning that Abraham learned God in a deeper way because of the time that he spent with him in prayer. He learned, God, aren't you a just God? And God revealed himself to be a just God. And finally, God was pleasured by the time that Abraham spent praying. It's a good model for you and I as we endeavor to increase and strengthen our prayer walk. Are we humble before God? Are we specific? Are we relational, giving to him what he wants on things, the time and the conversation? Are we listening and learning who he is as we spend time in his presence? We put out the paper tonight for the prayer vigil before the Easter service. Maybe some of you tonight wanting to strengthen just the time that you spend with God. You might put your name in one of those half-hour slots or maybe for an hour. You say, well, I'm not much of a prayer. I don't spend too much time. I don't know if I could do it for a full half-hour or for an hour. Just take the model of Abraham here. Take these simple things. Get on your knees and just tell God who He is and acknowledge your own weakness and frailty as a human. Confess your sin and get yourself cleansed before Him in His presence. 
worship him and talk to him for just a moment. And then, you know what I do? I just draw a circle around myself. And I start right on the inside, and I say, Lord, cleanse me. Help me, change me, work in my life. I'm open to you, whatever you want to do. And then just outside that circle, then I start to pray for my family, my kids and my wife. And then just outside that circle, I pray for my extended family, those that aren't saved yet. And then just outside of that, I pray for the families that we're closest to, our family friends, you know, people that we're linked with uh, the closest in this church, uh, that we know their kids, our, our friends with our kids. I pray for them next. Then I go a little bit further outside and I pray for the entire church. I pray for the church body here at Calvary Chapel and that God would be good to it. And then I go a little bit further and I pray for all the churches in Dutchess County, that God would be with the Christians and the pastors and the pulpits. And then I go a little bit further and I pray for our county leaders. I pray for Bill and Mark and I pray for the people in the administration and the government, that, that they would know Christ and that the gospel would continue. And then I pray for the entire county, those that aren't saved. And I pray that God would break the chains of addiction and you know, the, the, the chains of darkness and blindness and the things that keep people from coming to know Christ. And then, you know, by then the circle's so big, I'm almost done. I'll just pray, Lord, be with New York State and be with the United States and Lord, do your will in this world. And, and you know what's amazing is that if you do that, you just keep enlarging your circle, it's real easy to pray for a half hour. It's real easy to pray for an hour. And we have an incredible model, and I think it's probably timely that we're in this passage tonight, right now, when we have this opportunity to pray as a church body. And I would encourage you to sign up, be a part of that, strengthen your prayer life. Because you might see it as a task or an obligation, but God sees it as communion and fellowship. And I promise you this, that if you do it, you'll come away from that time so refreshed, so blessed, so full, so enlarged, you'll feel like you know God in a way that you didn't know Him before. He will speak to you in ways that you didn't expect. He'll show you things about circumstances and people and individuals. And trust me, it'll become a habit. It'll become a lifestyle. Next week, we'll tie together the loose end of the Lot story, the Lot saga, as we get into Genesis chapter 19. The musicians can come as we close in prayer tonight. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your ways. And as we just take in this meeting that you had with Abraham, Lord, it's the heart, cry, and desire of our life that we would be as he was. Oh, Lord, that we would know you in the way that he did. So help us, Father. Soften our hearts. Open our understanding. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And teach us your ways that we might walk in them. We give thanks. And we praise you.